0: Well good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, Uh, still a few more people signing on but um, we're uh, ready to go now and uh, we're going to start this seminar on uh, longshore situs. Um, Just to make it, uh, just to uh, give you a sense of uh, where I am today, I'm actually sitting in a hotel room in Austin, Texas. Um, managing to avoid the floods. So uh, uh, the nice thing is Austin for this time of the year is extremely green right now but I don't think it'll be a surprise to you um, but clearly uh, a lot of thoughts and prayers going to the people of uh, South Texas for their floods that uh, went on here um, over the last week or so. So our subject today is the situs test of Longshore and uh, it really started to morph into the current format in 1972. Um, and what we're going to do today is is look at the words that were added into uh, the Longshore Act in 1972. And then we're going to look at some court cases that have uh, interpreted or, in some cases, modified those, those rules. Um, As you'll remember from the uh, status seminar webinar we did a few weeks ago, uh, most of you attended that, um, we have to pass the status test and the CITES test. If anybody missed the status test, um, if you go to our website, um, they're all archived there, as this particular webinar will be in a few days. Uh, We'll have both the webinar itself recorded and uh, a copy of the slides uh, also posted. Um, So you don't have to take copious notes, but um, there are a couple of things where uh, today you probably will want to write down a couple of things. So um, if you don't already have a paper and pencil around with you, uh, uh, I'd grab one very quickly um, because we're going to get right into this uh, this afternoon. The situs test uh, is a fancy word for what was the location of the injury. Um, and again remember before we get into this that the it's the location of the injury that's critical not the location of the business or the uh, where that person is based for their work but where the injury happened and the CITES test is in section 3 of the Longshore Act and says except as otherwise provided in this section compensation shall be payable under this act in respect to the disability or death of an employee but only if the disability or death results from an injury occurring upon the navigable waters of the United States. Now, as those of you who know this act well uh, already realize, I've left out the adjoining areas from this, this part. Uh, we're gonna come to that a little bit later, but we're gonna start by the, the, the navigable waters definition. And what are the navigable waters of the United States? Um, you hear a lot of different speculation about different definitions and different ways to do this. Um, but certainly the, the coastal areas of the United States, in the Gulf of Mexico, in the Atlantic and Pacific, certainly the, most of the half of the Great Lakes, the other half belonging to Canada, uh, the whole of Lake Michigan, of course. But then all the rivers and lakes and byways and intercoastal waterways and just about any other place where you see boats moving around are gonna be considered navigable waters under the Longshore Act. There is no one place to go get that definition, so you really have to sort of cobble a definition together from a bunch of different places. And my definition comes out this way. It's a waterway in which you can directly or indirectly travel to another state, country, Gulf of Mexico or ocean. I like to think about it. Is if could I get in a small boat, maybe a John boat or a small skiff and short of picking it up out of the water and carrying it round some dam or, or some other mechanism, can I get to another state, to another country, to the Gulf of Mexico or to the, to one of the oceans? If I'm on a river that goes to a lake and goes to a stream that goes to another lake that goes to a river that goes to ultimately to the Gulf of Mexico, clearly that would be navigable waters under this definition. But think about a couple of places. Um, Lake Tahoe, I think is one of the classic examples here. Lake Tahoe is a landlocked lake, but you can get from California uh, to Nevada across the lake. That makes it navigable waters in the eyes of the Longshore Act. If you think of the most of the boundaries of states, yes, some of the Midwest have straight line boundaries, but for a large chunk of this country, the boundaries are squiggly lines. And those squiggly lines are often rivers that could be as little as a foot deep, two foot deep. And yet, because they're the boundary between two states, they could be considered navigable waters under the Longshore Act. This applies even if it's not currently navigable. The land could be silted, it could be frozen, it could be dried up as in California right now. Um, But if it's generally navigable, then it's considered navigable all the time. When we go around the coastline of the United States, um, navigable waters of the United States are considered 12 nautical miles limit out. Uh, 12 nautical miles is about a mile and a mile point one. Land miles are about 13 and a half land miles into the ocean and into the Gulf of Mexico is considered U.S. navigable waters. Now we're going to come into with some court cases in a while that's going to change that. Um, but this is the basic definition. Um, you don't have to, commer- have to have commercial traffic on here. Uh, any type of vessel traffic is enough to consider it, um, uh, to consider it as a navigable waters to the United States. Those of you in Florida, um, you might want to think about the Everglades. Um, The Everglades largely connect to the intercoastal waterway or to uh, the Kissimmee River. Both of those flow into Lake Okeechobee, again, back to the intercoastal waterway. You can come out out on one side in the Atlantic Ocean. You can come out on the other side into the Gulf of Mexico. Either way, they're considered navigable waters. Some people have, Suggested that navigable waters cannot be man made waters, and that again is simply not true. Um, there were some uh, uh, marine contractors that said, We only work on these artificially created islands, we don't think they're navigable. Again, not a true statement. So, what's not navigable? And there really aren't that many good examples of not navigable waters in the United States. It's a landlocked lake, uh, it could be upstream of a dam on a river with no locks to bypass, as long as they're within a single state. If any of you have been out to the Hoover Dam, uh, the body of water just to the north of that is locked between the Hoover Dam and the next dam up the river and it's called Lake Mead. But Lake Mead also forms the, bar- the, the boundary between Arizona and Nevada. so. That is navigable to the United States and subject to the Longshore Act. There is, in fact, a service there called the Lake Mead Ferry Service. You can go out and tour the lake on a little uh, sightseeing boat, and the people that repair that boat and do the service on the boat would be longshoremen. Clearly, the Coast Guard um, has some effect on that, but not all of it. Coast Guard would consider a lot of water not navigable, if it's too shallow or dried up or silted up. Um, But Longshore doesn't take that same boundary. They go up to include all those too shallow, um, too uh, maybe dried up or silted up things. So navigable water is a very, very broad term. Again, I think the simple answer is, can I get in a boat and get to another state To another country to the Gulf of Mexico or to one of the oceans. If I can do that you have navigable waters I'm sorry or to another state. So there we were sitting up with a nice uh, originally three mile now 12 mile uh, limit that that changed in Reagan's administration Um, and then the first case that came along to amend this navigable waters test and this was called Cove Tankers And we had a ship that was sailing from Philadelphia to New York when a boiler exploded and the vessel was 200 miles offshore at that moment of time. Now my first question is who was the navigator? Why were you going 200 miles offshore to go from Philadelphia to New York? There is no uh, great circle route to get to New York from Philadelphia, but the court said you cannot sail outside the three mile limit to avoid longshore benefits. So as long as you're sailing directly between two U.S. water, two U.S. ports, we will cover you for longshore. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, that vessel could have sailed 10 miles, 12 miles out and stayed within the current longshore limits, but it chose for some reason to go 200 miles offshore. I have no idea why. The problem is once you put that criteria in place, then collias versus DG marine maintenance becomes even worse because now we have a vessel sailing from Galveston, Texas, to Long Beach, California, all the way around the Cape. I don't know how far that is, maybe 10,000 miles, maybe a little less than that. But you're suddenly taking something that makes sense and really stretching it. The vessel that Kallias was on um, didn't plan to stop in any foreign waters or foreign ports. Um, it did end up landing Mr. Kallias in Curacao when he was injured. Um, but suddenly you're taking something that was intended to be three or 12 miles long and you're now taking it into the thousands of miles. That seems pretty drastic to me. But that's the court rulings that are enforced today. Weber versus Loveland took this another step further um, it extended benefits to an employee who was injured in Jamaica um, and this really was an interesting sort of set of circumstances here uh, Weber was continuously employed as a longshoreman here in the United States and was sent down to Jamaica for a short period I think somewhere around a week to do a specific job down there and the court said we're going to cover you in Jamaica now I think they completely trampled on the law when they did this Uh, law doesn't provide for anything in foreign waters and certainly, um, U S navigable waters does not include Jamaica, but the courts reasoned that his regular duties were in U S waters. So we're going to extend it to him temporarily. The interesting part of it is that travelers who were the carrier at this moment of time, um, had a regular, workers' comp policy out there that covered the Loveland on certain states uh, within the United States and didn't provide any overseas coverage Um, not surprisingly because nobody really ever contemplated that Longshore could go overseas so interestingly whilst the court awarded benefits to Mr. Weber they turned around and said to travelers oh by the way your policy doesn't have to pay because you don't cover injuries occurring overseas. During this period of time, Loveland, the employer of Mr. Webber, went bankrupt. And when a bankrupt employer and no valid insurance is in place, the government actually ends up paying that claim, or the benefits to Mr. Webber, I should say, under the 8F, the Special Injury Fund. So whilst the government the court side ended up paying or extending these benefits, uh, the government through the ADF fund ended up paying the benefits to Mr. Weber. The problem with this is that in virtually every traditional insurance policy out there with a longshore endorsement on it, you cannot solve this. Um, I'm not aware of any carrier today, any traditional workers comp carrier today that will give you longshore coverage overseas. Uh, The two mutuals will do, Um, again, subject to individual underwriting, but the traditional carriers that write Longshore uh, do not give overseas coverage, and that can give you a big gap of exposure. Grenon uh, was a stevedore. Uh, He was temporarily in Russia, and, again, based in the U.S., uh, helped to go and unload a barge um, somewhere over uh, near the Aleutian Isles, uh, over into Russia for Crowley Marine. And again, the courts awarded benefits, uh, to Mr. Grennan because he was a longshoreman in the U S and just was temporarily in Russia. Interesting though, in Keller versus Tracy, a 2012 decision, um, here the courts went the other way and said, uh, we're going to refuse c- to give you coverage in foreign territorial waters. I think it was in Ind- Indonesia, so some part of Southeast Asia, um, because he wasn't regularly exposed to longshore. So the difference between these cases is um, in Granon, and in the Jamaican case, um, the person was regularly a regular longshoreman in the U.S. and was temporarily overseas, whereas Keller was never a longshoreman in the U.S. Um, and although was permanently overseas almost permanently overseas. So here's the fun part. Now in 1972, uh, Congress added the adjoining area definition. And this is where it gets a bit more complicated because whilst it says any adjoining pier, wharf, dry dock, terminal, building way, marine or other adjoining area, customary area used by an employer in loading, unloading, repairing, dismantling, or building a vessel. Congress's intention to put this in force was to stop coverage flip-flopping between state and longshore for somebody walking on and off a vessel. They said the longshoreman should be able to come off the vessel and still get the same set of benefits as if he was on the other end of the gangplank going on the vessel. So 72, coming up for 50 years ago now, 45 years ago now, um, they plugged that gap by adding this adjoining area test. Here's the problem. Different courts take it in different ways. Now, if you have a pen and pencil, uh, a pen and paper rather, with you at the moment, this is a great time just to pick it up because I want you to identify where you are in which court of which U.S. Court of Appeals circuit you are. Um, I'm going to run through many of the states, but um, as we've got people from all over the country in here. Uh, just go down, right down, look at your district numbers. I hope you can see them. They basically start from one up in Maine, uh, work over to nine on the west coast and then the centre and the southeast are 10 and 11 respectively. Um, because the, there's a different interpretation depending on in which district you're in today. If you're involved in this on a daily basis, I really suggest you download the um, Department of Labor's Longshore Bulletin. Uh, it's up here on the top right, uh, bulleted bulletin number 14-02, uh, I think it was released in 2013, possibly 2014, 2013, I think, um, that walks you through this in more depth. But um, uh, we've got to look at where did the injury happen? Um, I could have a Florida person uh, employed in Florida, doing 99% of their job in Florida, flies to Texas for a day and does a job in Texas, and we have to use the Fifth Circuit rules that are in Texas. Uh, So it's not where the business is based, it's where the accident happened. And what I want to do now is just run through the various districts um, quickly. Some of them are blocked together here for simplicity, and give you the different interpretations that work where your clients are. A couple of interesting cases here in the 4th and 5th, um, Louisiana and Texas, Mississippi, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Um, slide, uh, Sidewell sorry, and Zepeda, or Zepeda, I'm not really good on the pronunciation there as you can tell, uh, both came out with this decision, one a little while ago and one more recently, where they're using the very traditional word for a join. And they're saying lying next to be touching or bounding at some bounding at some point. So here adjoining area literally means that it is waterfront. Um, It's going to be next to touching or bounding navigable waters. Uh, This is a pretty restrictive area and there's a lot of court cases going on or a lot of ongoing claims going on right now uh, that are in the process of changing their jurisdiction because of these cases, particularly Zabeda. Um, that again, side has been around a little while. As Peter, I think, was again 2013, uh, tail end of 2013. So it's really only taking effect at this moment of time. So again, fourth and fifth circuits, you have to be touching the water, legs to the water, waterfront, to be an adjoining area in any of those states. Um, When we get to the first, second and ninth circuits, I'm not going to read all those states across the top. You can see them as well as I can, but but a lot of the west coast is in here and New England. Here the test is a little different. They go back to the case Brady Hamilton versus Heron. And here they're talking about not only the proximity of the waterway, but the function of the uh, site. So if we have somebody that is maybe a mile away, two miles away, uh, from the waterfront but it's as close to the word water as feasible as the adjoining premises are used in maritime co- commerce then they will get this expanded definition so again first second and ninth uh, take in a lot more ground um, than the fourth and fifth and the fourth and fifth have changed uh, recently so the fourth and fifth used to be more like this now they're definitely waterfront only Uh, The Eleventh Circuit, uh, which is uh, Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, uh, uses a case called TechSport Stevedores versus Winchester. And they're talking about close to, near, or neighboring. Um, So there's not a requirement in the Eleventh Circuit to be absolutely waterfront, but you've got to be close. Uh, You've got to be near. You've got to be in in the neighborhood. Um, Here I think the best example is if you're going to be in in a secure port facility even if you're not waterfront, but you're in that port facility, I think you're going to get that adjoining area in most cases. Um, it's always a little bit of a gamble, but that um, that seems to be the sort of rule of thumb in the 11th circuit today. The third circuit, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. I don't think we got too many of you on from, you, from those three states, but um, uh, You've got two precedents. You've got both the Harriman and the Winchester ones, both of those sitting up there. So there's no real clear definition again here, but um, again, if you're within port premises, probably in these locations, you're gonna get benefits, but it doesn't limit it to that. Again, you could be further away if you're as close to the water as feasible, if the surrounding premises are used in maritime commerce. Um, So that's somewhat confused Uh, set in the Third Circuit, but they do use both those precedents. Then fortunately, um, the Department of Labor has come in and and made a rule for the 6th, 7th, 8th and 10th. All those circuits, they don't have any precedents out there with court cases uh, that really address this issue. So the Department of Labor have ruled that the district, uh, sorry, the National Director has ruled uh, that you're going to use Heron. Uh, so you can use that same test we talked about just a minute ago in Heron. So if you're on the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 10th, I didn't bother to list all those states there. Um, go, back to the, uh, go back to the Heron case, and you can see from that. Uh, again, I am going to be making these slides available, so you don't have to take a huge amount of notes, but at least you're going to start by knowing which circuit you're in. Um, before we move on, um, if you've got questions please go ahead. I've got a couple of, the, um, uh, couple of them sitting uh, on the books already, but if you've got other questions please go ahead and type those in now. We'll answer them in just a minute as best we can. Uh, again, our Certified Marine Insurance Professional, the uh, uh, hands-on seminar training, two days, uh, coming up in October um, here in Texas. This one will be in Houston. Out on the west side of Houston, uh, it's the insuring vessel owners and operators. So this will go through hull, PNI, cargo, charterers' legal liability, and some other issues like that. Um, our website for iimis.com uh, has the registration uh, for that and more information on the seminar. Uh, We have uh, four specific webinars scheduled at this moment of time uh, coming up. P&I we're going to do on July 7th. Uh, Longshore insurance coverage, rules, payrolls, and mods on August 11th. Understanding mutuality on September 1st. Uh, Stock throughput on October 13th. Um, We also have two more uh, webinars. We're going to have the collision and towers liability webinar shortly. Uh, That was rescheduled from last month. Um, And then we're adding a new webinar uh, in November for uh, understanding excess and umbrella, marine excess and umbrellas. Uh, We haven't set the date on that, uh, but as that date uh, comes up, um, uh, we'll post that on the website and uh, broadcast it to anybody that's attended uh, these webinars. So again, questions. Anybody got questions? Let's address a couple of them that are up there already, Um, has the recent redefinition of wetlands changed the definition? No, longshore really sort of sits out on its own and makes its own definition. Um, The question becomes, can I get to another, to to the Gulf, to the ocean, uh, to another country or to another state? Um, If I can be in the wetlands and go to another state, I'm going to be in the longshore waters. Um, one of the questions I get a lot are about the spillways down in South Florida. Are those navigable waters? And the simple answer is probably not. Um, we, um, you can um, look at most of those and there is no way to get out of the spillways. Um, if there is one where you can get out into the Everglades and then again into Lake Okeechobee and therefore into the intercoastal waterway, therefore into the Gulf or, uh, Gulf or the ocean, then clearly um, you would have some coverage there. Um, one correction, the last slide showed the webinars at 1.30 um, Eastern, they have been moved to 2.30 Eastern um, to accommodate those people in the center of the uh, country in, in uh, central time zone, uh, so they're not having to do these for the um, doing these during lunchtime. All right next question has a rec- with a recreational vessel built on a plant line on shore but tested in a nearby waterway does longshore apply? Uh, it certainly longshore would certainly apply for the uh, testing in the waterway assuming it meets the uh, navigable definition uh, that we've just gone through. Um, I missed the status webinar is that available for playback somewhere yes if you go to ligmarine.com bottom left hand corner of our website is a link to all of the webinars we've uh, produced this year so far Um, and we'll continue building that um, that library Uh, not only the webinar but also um, you'll have a chance to get a copy of the slides should you wish those, you can download those online. Um, and just for those of you who are new to the webinars, uh, there's no charge for any of this, this is just something uh, uh, we do for, for you as, a, as part of our services. Uh, if you're working on a bridge over Navig waters, longshore, not any vessel. Um, it's a tough question, it's, it's one where we could literally spend a couple of hours going over bridge workers um, the first thing you got to establish is what type of bridge uh, we're working on. If it's a fixed bridge um, then it is considered an extension of the land after it's substantially complete. So if you're building the fixed bridge you're probably going to be longshore. Once you finish building it and you're starting to surface it and do things like that then you're probably not going to be longshore unless you're doing things like hanging the navigation lights because now you uh, become, you come back into uh, aiding navigation. If you're looking at a swing bridge, a lift bridge, floating bridge, uh, anything that allows boat traffic to pass through or by it or under it, um, not a fixed bridge, but anything that moves, uh, then generally yes, you are going to be considered longshore. Uh, again somebody asked what was the website again ligmarine.com is the website for the uh, all the webinars bottom left hand corner of our main website well that seems, seems to be all the questions for today I want to thank everybody for attending um, we'll hope to see you at the uh, next uh, webinar next month have a good afternoon